Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fire These Times. My name is Eamon McAdam, and I'll be your host for today. Joining me are two Sudanese commentators, Reja Makawi and Dalia Muhammad. In this episode, we'll be talking about what is happening in Sudan, the current war situation, as well as the revolutionary movements which it has effectively crushed. We'll talk about Sudan's recent history, the political discourses both locally and internationally, and touch on the wider implications at the regional and global level for what we're witnessing in Sudan today. But first, I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves in whatever way they see fit. Hello, Ayman. Um, thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, this is really exciting. Uh, so my name is Raja Makawi. I am uh, Sudanese-British. I, I'm based in London and I work as a researcher at the London School of Economics. Um, yeah. Uh, hi, Ayman. Uh, thank you for having me as well. I'm Dalia Mohammed Abdelmonam. I'm Sudanese. And I, prior to the war, I was, I had a small, I was a small business owner and that's now in the ashes and I've kind of stumbled into a new, new like vocational job, which is more like of an analyst and a commentator on Sudanese politics and, and African politics in general. So uh, this is where I am at the moment. I'm currently in Cairo and uh, Happy to be here with Raja, and let's see where this goes. All right, thank you both for that for those uh, lovely introductions. Um, so I think it'd be good to start with a brief overview of what's happening today, as in the war, how it started, who are the key players, and what are the impacts of people on the ground. Okay, I'll I'll jump in on this one. I mean, it's we're getting. I think we're months, uh, six months since the war started. And my answer is pretty much the same every time I'm asked, what's the situation like in Sudan? There's not much change. If anything, it's gotten worse. The humanitarian situation is dire. It's getting worse and worse. There's no sign of let up between the fighting between both generals, the Sudanese army and the RSF, the paramilitary group headed by General Hamiti. And the international community seems to have taken a step back, not really interested or not really don't have much of a say anymore in what's happening and we're basically i think we're just biding our time to see what happens next it's uh it's very disheartening because the destruction of the country continues i mean i can handle the the looting of the homes and i can handle you know war but the idea of the destruct of the destruction of the production sector of the country, the economic factor, you know, the infrastructure, hospitals, schools, you know, this is what matters to me because I don't know how we're going to be able to rebuild if we're ever able to rebuild. Because already Sudan, before the war, we were in a really bad, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world, you know, we tick all the the boxes when it comes to countries that are considered to be somewhat of a failure, failure. And this war has just exacerbated the situation for us. And so I watch and I read and I see what's happening. And every time there's a little spark of hope that maybe, maybe something's going to happen. It seems we take a few steps back and the war just erupts even further. And this, I mean, right now, one of the things that's coming out is the kidnapping of Sudanese civilians by RSF. And they go through their phone book and they call their contacts and demand ransom. And you're talking amounts of a million dollars, a million and a half dollars. And this is happening to a friend of mine, a friend of hers. And it's just, 
the horror stories keep coming out and they're getting worse and worse. And I mean, there's, there's just no let up. We as Sudanese haven't had, we haven't caught a break since the highs of 2019 of the revolution to the really the nadir of what we're going through right now. And it's just one blow after the other. It's like you're in a ring with Mike Tyson at his peak and there's nothing you can do. The blows just keep coming and we're being hit from everywhere. And it's just really, it's it's taking a toll on all of us, those who are still there, those who've managed to leave and those who are always out but don't know what to do. It's just it's depressing to be honest, you know. I don't know if Rajak, you know, Rajak definitely has something to add to this. Thank you so much, Dalia. I mean, the way that you described um, the blows, it's so poignant. Yes, we're up against an opponent that, 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 you know, that we have no way of, you know, hitting back or even defending ourselves. And I mean, I don't know about you or the rest of the people who have been affected by it. I am down. I've been down for a long time and I can't take any more blows, but they just keep coming. Maybe this is something that we could also kind of touch upon later in this episode, you know, the, the, the mental kind of cost or the mental health toll that's affecting an entire community. I mean, yes, of course, we have to think about rebuilding the economy, rebuilding the, the country. But how about rebuilding also our, you know, our psyche as a, as, a, as a community? What does it mean to be a Sudanese after all of this is done and dusted? But to go back to um, Ayman's question about how this war came about, I think this has been in the books for, the, for a long time. You know, the ultra-militarization of... Uh, Sudan's both polity and economy and they both feed each other and this seems to be an um, an expected ending to how you know um, different parties both domestic regional and international have been at, at a tug and at each other's throats to kind of you know um, land themselves a bit of the pie, a bit of the a bit of power at any cost, and this is not new. I mean, obviously, what's happened in Khartoum is is the latest, but this militarization of you know entire communities and societies for the benefit of certain elites and their polities, who are ready to you know um, cut whatever deals, and I mean basically do whatever in order to kind of, you know, edge an inch closer to power. Um, Darfur has more than 20 years of, you know, heightened militarization that was a product of um, first the state arming certain groups against each other. And it was a fight over resources, over land, you know, kind of, you know, reworked land relations for the benefits of, of certain groups or certain elites. Um, and obviously, in response to that, then you had rebel groups emerge over 20 years. And then as a result, you had an entire generation of young people who have not, you know, received ample education, who were never able to enter the job market properly and have, as a result, sought, you know, uh, violence or the barrel of the gun as the only means uh, to be able to make a living. And this has extended until it's reached, you know, its ultimate conclusion, which is the seat of power. 
Um, no, yeah, thank you both for the uh, sharing your insights. I think there's something very strange about the development. Um, I mean, it's something very relatable for me uh, coming from Lebanon, where we did have this kind of uh, amazing uh, elated high, 2019 as well. And ever since then has just been a blow after blow after blow after blow. And it is very difficult to even have a kind of imagination left to kind of think. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit into talking just as an overview before we get really into it about um, the kind of the the key players, the specific parties. So you mentioned that food and it's a very important because uh, what used to be quite it's I've often heard this discussed in Sudanese circles as a periphery. It's called the regions. And this is the space, a place that has experienced genocide for decades. And one of the generals today, uh, Hameti, um, came to power or rose in the ranks in the Janjaweed in Darfur. And then in many ways, that violence that was kind of experimented and developed over there, then came to a seat of power in Khartoum. And so how does that come about? What What is the sort of specific history between Hemeti and Burhan that resulted in essentially this violence we're seeing today? Well, I think one of the common factors between Burhan and Hemeti is the role of the Islamists, the Kazan. Don't forget Hemeti rose to power uh, in a way he was like the private army of the former president, Omar al-Bashir, he utilized Hemeti and his men as a way to protect him. And Burhan also has a history of, you know, of violence in Darfur. I think one of the main, one of the first conflicts arose was in Jabal Marra, and he was the he was the general in charge. So there is that common factor. They both have blood in the, on their hands. It's not it's not one or the other. They both. In my book, in regards to what their actions are towards Sudan and Sudanese, you know, there's not, maybe one is more legitimate than the other because he's the head of the national army, so to speak. But in my book, they're both pretty much the same because both of them have wreaked havoc, have caused war destruction on Sudanese, regardless of where we, where you are in the country. And I think they were, they were bedfellows when it suited them. And then once they yanked that power, you know, yanked that power and reached that, the high, the high, that high level, that high pedestal, it became a conflict between who's going to have what. And this is what we're paying the price for, basically. Two men fighting over the megalomania, you know, who's going to be in power, like Raja said. And, you know, it was, I mean, it's funny see, hearing all of Borhan's statements. And I keep thinking, you locked, you shook hands with him. And you committed that coup in October 2021. So at one point in time, he was your BFF. And now all of a sudden, you know, and he's listing all these, you know, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, that the, the RSF has committed, the atrocities that RSF have committed. And I'm like, yeah, you can list the same thing for the army, but everyone has, you know, a con- convenient amnesia when they want it. So they forgot, they've forgotten all the past 30, 40 years of conflict and just focusing on the past five months. But if you look at our history of Sudan, it's always been, ever since we've gained independence, there's always been conflict or war or something. It's never been peaceful or, you know, let's hold hands and sing Kumaya. That's never happened, except for maybe two years during Nimeri's time. 
So it's you know as if you if you've read up on Sudan and you followed on Sudan, it's not a surprise at all what's happening right now. It was inevitable. I mean, there was no way two generals, two different, two separate armies were going to coexist peacefully together, no matter how much you know outside actors, regional actors tried to push for that to happen. Even local, you know, even our own politicians, even no matter how hard they tried to push them together, you can't make. You can't put a square peg, you know, round hole, so to speak. It had to happen. And, you know, it was, I think we all knew this was going to happen, that this was going to be the end result. Well, but for me personally, I didn't think it was going to happen so quickly, so soon. I honestly thought there was, there's going to be a little more like, you know, the duel, duel going on between them before things flare up. But they didn't even go through. They didn't even go for the through the preliminary rounds. They just went straight, you know, head to head clash. And it's it's. I don't. I keep thinking what can happen or what can be done to somewhat end this conflict. And I keep drawing blanks. I can, I keep trying to think. Okay, maybe this. And I think even if outside actors you know, yank the strings and like pull them and told, tell them to pull back or to hold back. I think it's we've gone too far down the line for anything to happen. I think it's just going to be one long-winded conflict. And for me personally, I don't see how or when it can end. And But it's a natural progression of the past few years in Sudan, especially the, since 2016, 20, since 2013, when the government first put down protests and you know the, uh, you know democracy calling civilians and pro, you know since then it's just been a slow transition into this full out war that we're having right now yeah i mean i agree completely with everything that dalia said um perhaps just going back to the point that you raised even in the beginning about this concept of the, of the periphery I think historically in Sudan, um, the people of the center, you know, the urbanites like ourselves, have always thought of the periphery as, some, as something that is maybe removed from our own realities. We only, and we, we had a very kind of, you know, contentious and contested relationship with it. And it kind of, you know, oscillates between us, you know, uh, vying to defend them or defend it, uh, whatever, you know, we imagine it is. You know, as we did during the early days of the revolution, all of the countries therefore when we proclaimed that. And between, you know, kind of blaming them, you know, using the ethnic card to subdivisions and say things like, well, you know, people in Darfur are nothing like us, or these people, their tribal systems are the main reason why we can develop a society. So I think that we as a political society at some point, perhaps post-war, need to address this, we need to address the periphery question in a more rigorous way. If we are even to develop a proper, you know, kind of civic project, which we have failed to do in these last four years during the revolution. I think if anything, this war has proven that the periphery is and always was the locus of Sudanese politics, right? We tend to always think that it's the state that sits in the center with all its professionals and civil servants and political elites who have the upper hand in deciding what happens, where and how. But the reality is much more complicated than that. 
And if we were to talk about the ominous relationship between Burhan and Hermeti, it was actually kind of, it flourished within the context of the periphery, you know, the periphery as an area that, you know, contested, removed, uh, that's a battleground. And the facilitator of this, you know, egregious relationship was the army uh, or the security sector, the security arena with all its players, the army, you know, the um, um, the military intelligence, uh, the security the security apparatus you know, in all its forms. That's that's where, as Dalia said, these two kind of, you know, struck a relationship and became, you know, BFFs. The kind of common ground that they were able to achieve and realize and then build on to kind of transfer their power to the seat of, you know, to 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 the center, developed, you know, in the periphery. I just want to add something. Yeah, when you were talking about post-war and how how we need to address how we how we how we the, those in the center will address the periphery, I think it's broken. I think this war has really shown the ugly side of the Sudanese society in regards to how we view each other. It's already, I mean, you see all these caricatures and all these jokes being made of, you know, you know, of Himiti and, you know, but I keep telling people Himiti is a product of the center. Himiti was not conjured up by some genie in a bottle. Himiti was made by the center because he was a useful tool for their, for their demands. And now that creation has come to bite all of us on the in the behind. It's not just the Darf people of Darfur who are suffering, you know, round two of Himiti and his actions. It's also it's actually now the rest of the country. But we need to address how we, those in the center, continue to view the rest of the country. Yes, we're made up of so many different ethnic groups and tribes and dialects and backgrounds and all of that. And some people see it as a point of weakness that Sudan can't move forward because of that, you know, hybrid mix of people. But for me, and I think for many of us, especially of our age group, we see it as a strong point. But unfortunately, that strong point isn't being translated when it comes to, when it comes to the time of being seated at the table and discussing it, even after the revolution, when and after the coup, the they were still being marginalized. You know, they were the people at the table were still the same old dinosaur, political dinosaurs who've always been there since the day I was born. There's been no change. So even with you know outside actors and regional players and organizations, they kept to the same old traditions of keeping those who who have been affected the worst and you know affected the worst by the actions by the state and by actors of the state and by those who can see and say, no, you need to include all of us. You know, this pie needs to be shared equally by all of us, not just shared 80% by so-and-so, and then we give the crumbs to the remainder of the country. I mean, I am from the center. I am from Khartoum, you know, and but when I was, when we were leaving Khartoum to go to Port Sudan, I was shocked at how, infrastructurally and everything behind the rest of the country was. And I'm just talking about an hour out of Khartoum. I'm not even talking about going into the depths of the country. It's just an hour just going into Medani, a Jazeera state. So, and I was thinking that and I was like, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not surprised that this is happening because for so long people have been, you know, 
people came to Khartoum, the state of Khartoum, because there was nowhere else to go. Because where they were, there was nothing. They literally had nothing. They still have nothing. And we kept at it. We kept hammering it into them that Khartoum is special. Khartoum, Khartoum. And so will our politicians or will the negotiators or the mediators realize that you can't have talks, you can't have roundtable discussions if you don't include every single person who's affected. And at this moment in time, the ones who are affected by this war are the people of Darfur. The number of the sheer number of Darfurians escaping beats out the number of car- people from Khartoum who left via Egypt, Ethiopia, and and Saudi Arabia, for example, or the UAE. It's just so that alone says it all. But no one's paying attention to that. You know, Darfur is still being used as Oh, Darfur, poor Darfur. No, it's not just poor Darfurians. It's how do you make sure that they, that, you know, we keep we keep saying never again. You know, it's being repeated so many times, this phrase, for so many events. And yet these same events keep being repeated time and time again. It's like we never learn. And yes, during the revolution, we're like, yes, we're all Darfur. But now hear what they're saying about the RSF, Makulum, you know, there's a very derogatory term they use to describe people from Western Sudan. They call them Gharraba, which literally means from the West, but the connotations is quite horrible. So like, yes, the RSF is all Gharraba. They're all, you know, they're not Sudanese. Usulum from Chad, their origins are Chadean. So already that conversation is being had and it's being repeated a lot. So I would like to think that we will have that this discussion post-war but honestly, I don't think we will. I think if anything, we're going to double down and it's going to become even worse. And remember, like we used to say, oh, this person is a cause. Keep away from them. They're Islamists. The, the conversation will be, like, oh, this person is from is the Amma. Whether they are or they aren't, we're just going to align them to that group of RSF soldiers. And let's not forget the vast majority of these RSF soldiers are kids who know nothing who basically been told, here's some money, just take a gun and go fight. You know, and I keep, my sister keeps repeating this and I have to agree with her. The RSF is a creation of our politics, our policies, us. They didn't come out of nowhere. They, they emerged from within us, just like the Islamists emerged from within us, just like, you know, there's no outside factor here. We're all Sudanese, but... The division, the lines of division have been drawn. And I think it's when and if this war ever ends, it's going to get uglier. It's going to become really ugly. And we're going to see a horrible side to us as Sudanese. And we've always, you know, prided ourselves in our being open and welcoming and so on. We're welcoming to others, but we're not welcoming for ourselves. I mean, fascism in Sudan is on the rise. You've got a particular kind of populism that has emerged, especially, I mean, in the last two, three months. I mean, I see it everywhere on social media. People make proclamations, ethnic proclamations, about certain groups and certain people in sweeping blanket terms. There is no sense of, you know, the danger that this could pose, even if the war ended tomorrow, especially in a, you know, in a society as, you know, kind of fragilely knit as the Sudanese one, with all its kind of, you know, historic um, problems, basically. Um, And, I mean, I'm sorry to say that 
the majority of these narratives are emerging from, you know, people like us. And it's quite, it's disheartening because we're talking about educated middle class who have gone into reaction mode full on. I mean, I understand they're angry, they're scared, they are grieving the loss of everything, but, you know, turning uh, your worst on, you know, communities that have at some point or other, and even now, in the long history of, the long problematic history of Sudan being, being you know, at the receiving end of um, uh, state uh, and structural violence is not the answer. Yes, a pop- I mean, a very kind of concerning form is, of populism is, is, is on the rise in Sudan. Wow, um, there's there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to jump in and say that there's honestly so many similarities. And I feel uh, in so many of the discussions of the center and the periphery and the rise of populism that is sort of focused on marginalized communities, but ultimately their victims will be everybody. And I see this so much in Lebanon, wherein now there is so much um, antagonism and yes, coming from people like me and middle class and educated against Syrian refugees who people constitute as an other. And that, again, everything is so much has collapsed in Lebanon. And so we are in a situation of complete economic and political and social collapse. But this has nothing to do with the Syrian refugee. And what really scares me, obviously, for the well-being of the Syrians in Lebanon, but is that these things that are mobilized against these peripheralized people, marginalized people, is ultimately going to embolden forces that we then can't stop. And and we see that just yesterday, there was this tiny protest for people protesting for freedom of expression that were violently attacked um, by a kind of coalition of sectarian gangs, essentially. And when I mean coalition, I mean the whole sectarian makeup. And so there's this really powerful quote for me that I think about by Angela Davis um, that pertains to this. I think it's it goes like, if they come for me in the morning, they'll come for you in the night. And to me, this is the imperative of listening to marginalized communities and not, a, not in a virtue signaling way, but in a way because it, it pertains to all of us. And I think there's one expression of this that came in, out of Sudan that I thought was really incredible, which is in the form of the resistance committees during the revolution. Because if I'm not mistaken, the first resistance committees to form or to form politically were in areas that were con- are considered the regions. And in their makeup and in the ways that they discussed with each other, and then through the political charters that they all wrote together, it was an attempt to combine these 18 different states and sort of trying to erase this false dichotomy. Well, not the false dichotomy, but this forced dichotomy of center and periphery. And so I wonder if if you could speak towards that, because I think definitely coming from Lebanon, there was a lot of people who looked towards the uh, the freedom of the the forces of freedom and change as a kind of model, but completely ignoring the resistance committees that kind of form the actual grassroots. Um, so if we could go back and talk a little bit about this, I think that's a, a really interesting uh, dynamic. 
Um, I think the, the resistance committees was a natural progression of the social fabric of what of what made Sudan because when you have when you have let's say when you have an illness, when you have someone who's sick you're not the only one who takes care or you're the only one, you're not the only one who steps in to help the whole neighborhood your friends your family continue so i think the resistance committees it was something similar they took that idea of like okay we all help each other because the state provided nothing did not help at all so people had to pro- help and provide for themselves so if you couldn't do it someone else would step in and help you out you know so i think the resistance committees was a natural progression of that they just took it on a more you know structured manner and they really thought about it and how they can actually implement this not just on a social level but also on a political and state level and it it worked it's working until now i mean in in communities in khartoum and darfur where aid agencies cannot reach or cannot get through they are the ones who are providing the medical help you know the logistical help the financial help you know they're 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 whole they're holding you know food banks and you know communal fo- food uh, planning to help everyone out it just goes to show that you know when you take away all the politics out of things people can actually to be more effective be you know be more proactive and actually help each other but what's sad is that for so long the resistance committees were brushed were pushed to the side you know they were heralded as being too young too naive too too idealistic you know it's not going to work out take you know we we know better i remember hearing that phrase about you know they don't know much they don't have the experience but in reality they do have the experience because they grew up getting nothing from no one so they had to band together to really help so they just put that on a more larger no wider scale and it's disheartening that until today until today you know even with all that's happening the resistance committees are still not being treated as an equal partner or you know or being given that seat at the table and then you get all this whole you know social media rumor rumor rumorville so to speak selling you oh this group sold out and they've joined with this political party or this group is you know doing this and but they're still doing their job they're still in khartoum they're still in umbeda they're still in all those neighborhoods and they're just continuously doing their job but they need their their position their status needs to be elevated it needs to be elevated by those who can but they're not doing it and and i say just talking from in terms of the political the our sudanese political groups they're completely ignoring them maybe i'm wrong but i don't see them being involved like they're going on their african and european tours where's the resistance committees they're doing the job that you as politicians failed to do but they're not being heralded they're not being given that seat at the table and but if you talk to any sudanese average sudanese civilian they all recognize what the, what they've done and what they continue to do and if there is one like glimmer of hope it's for me it's those resistance committees as to what they've done they've shown that there's no need for these divisions these lines that we continuously draw and say this is where you are and this is where i am this is where the rest of us are they they've blurred those lines but will they be take will they be taken more seriously they should you know the ngos are taking them seriously they're using them to make sure that their aid gets through 
but the powers that be continue to ignore them, continue to push them to the side. And that's what's frustrating to me about our political leaders. So, you know, leaders, quote unquote, because I don't think they're leaders anymore, but that's what they are. <laughs> so that's what I'll label them as. So, but yeah, I think for me, the, the that's one of the, that's one beacon of hope for me. It's the resistance committees that they've continued doing the job. Even they've been beaten, they've been arrested, they've been tortured, they've been detained. They've gone through the whole gamut of, you know, abuse by state and state actors. And yet they continue to stand stand their ground and do their thing. And they've never budged. They've never swerved away from their mandate. And that is just something that they, they you know, it should be heralded more and it should be studied more, I think, because it is something that I think other communities and other, you know, other communities can learn from, especially in countries where there is a lot of the ethnic divisions, there is a lot of conflict, political divisions and so on. Well, maybe just to add to what Dahlia said is, um, I mean, obviously I say this while holding the RCs, you know, to the, you know, utmost and highest. I have the utmost and highest respect for them. I see them as the future. They are the one glimpse of hope in an otherwise, you know, dark reality. And I'm just wondering how useful is it for a political model like that of the RCs to be brought to the, you know, within within the realm of the state, right? How 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 useful is it to bring them, you know, into the fold of power? Will it just corrupt them? Will it create divisions uh, between members of you know this you know the same committees or you know across across the board across you know all their geographical locations? Because the reality is we're dealing with a social movement with particular structures that are not equal, but highly combined. I mean, if you take the resistant committees in, in, in Khartoum State, for example, or in you know Khartoum, the capital, Khartoum, the city, in Khartoum, like every you know, post-colonial city is an urban enclave that is divided by, you know, class, ethnicity, gender, and other things. These, you know, these these variables speak to power politics. And I've done a little bit of research on the kind of constituency of the RCs and, you know, the materials that they've produced. And I've noticed that there was a lot of internal, you know, um, contestation, not competition, but contestation even regarding, you know, realizing uh, or kind of, you know, rallying around certain political positions. And that's, there's no problem with that, right? I mean, if we're debating politics, uh, positionality is key and people have a right to, you know, communicate political positions from their own points of view or as it, you know, as it affects them. But that didn't preclude the fact that there were, you know, uneven hierarchies that affected how the social movement was able to organize, to be productive, to communicate, to represent itself. And it did create, you know, um, divisions from within and did affect not just the outcome, which were the charters, but also the process and the timeline. And these are really important things that we need to talk about moving forward. Um, I believe that the resisting committees could end up you know, are actually now, you know, um, 
have managed to form a locus of, you know, um, uh, a political vision, most importantly, education through experience, through doing. No one is telling them. They've gone through a lot of, you know, trial and error for the last five years, and they've paid with it for their lives. And this is why I always say, whenever I sit down to take a talk about the RCs, I say that these people, if, I, if I'm going to describe them as something, even if they're 15 years old, is that they are political adults. They are more politically mature than the most senior politician in the Freedom and Change Forces because they have, you know, uh, faced the brunt of violence um, on the streets, violence that came from militias, from the police, from the state, from the army, right? But also from these hierarchies, and they have preserved, they have prevailed, they have continued, they've not quit. But for us to say that the political project or the political vision that they have is, you know, complete or has even materialized might be, you know, jumping the gun. And I don't know if I need to say anything about the forces of freedom and change. I mean, honestly, that name does not suit them at all. They they, they have nothing to do. They are neither a force nor are they about freedom or change. But I have to say that if one looks at the long history of, you know, political evolution and rupture at the different political junctures in Sudan since independence, we have had these junctures, these turns, you know, these revolutionary turns every 20 years. And we have had almost identical elite-led uh, political committees that have emerged as, you know, leadership figures at the helm of every revolution. And every time they had, they have proclaimed certain political values, progressive democratic liberal values. However, their actions and more importantly, their history in relation to the political establishment has been quite problematic. The forces of freedom and change have come out of another body that was created during the signing of the CPA. Do you remember the name, Dalia? What was it, what was it called? Okay, it's uh, Sudan al-Jadid. Born or something. There's so many names, there's so many committees, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh my God! Yeah, but see, it was Sudan something. But the reason you don't remember, and I don't remember, is because there's so many of them. It's ridiculous. And this is also a political tactic. Every time, right? They want to show themselves, show their reputation, right? Immerse themselves forcefully and illegally into a new political project. They just kind of rehuddle and rename themselves. Yeah, I, I, I call them political dinosaurs. I mean, they've literally been there since the day I was born. Same faces, same names. Some have passed away. The majority are still there. And for some reason, they have very long lives, mashallah. But see, just to go back to your points about the RC and being part of the political process, unfortunately, while they, if they continue to be on the grassroots level, in terms of Sudanese population at large, they won't be seen nor viewed as an entity that needs to be acknowledged. They will give them the pat on the head and tell them, "One good job, thank you, but that's it. But, and I also think the reason why, yes, they have their problems, their disagreements, their disputes, and you know, that, that's part of that's part and parcel of the, the nature of the monster, so to speak. But the reason why I have such faith in the RCs is simply because they represent a demographic that has been hit the worst 
you know, they're the ones who are like the youth, they're the, 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 that age bracket between the ages of 15 and I think let's say 45, who haven't seen anything from the state or from this country for, or in anything positive. They've had it the worst. And they're not disillusioned. They have they have an idea. Maybe they're maybe maybe they're a bit too idealistic, but they've never wavered from what they believed in. I mean, I after the coup, I was going out week in, week out to all the protests. They never changed their tune. Sitting and talking to them, they never change. They they believe in what there's in what their what their call is for. And to me, that says a lot because they could have easily been paid off. Some have been paid off of, of, of probably, but they're they want something better for themselves. They want something better for their community, for their country, for their people. And they're not so, how do you say it, hardened by the reality, the political reality that many of us see, that they haven't become, so they, they still believe that there's a chance, you know, for democracy, for human rights and liberty and, and so on and so forth. And it's kind of, for me, it feels me, it, it's, it's good to see that because Politics is a horrible monster. It can eat you up and chew you out and you get nothing out of it. But they're sticking to their guns. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the RC members never left Sudan. They're still there doing what they signed up for, you know. And that to me says a lot that even through all the crap that's happening right now, you know, they maybe their mantra has switched slightly as in, let's save the country. Let's see. Well, let's try to help the people that we can. But they're holding on to their beliefs and to their, you know, uh, oh God, I've lost all my English now. But you know what I mean. So I hear you about what you say about the RCs, but after all, the past few years have shown anything to me. They've stuck to their guns. They've never wavered. They've called it. They've called out those who sold them out, or they've they've always been there and. We always think we all need that one little thing we can hold on to. Say, well, this is this is the future for us. This is how we can move on. We can move forward from this quagmire that we're in. Let's just hope that they don't get disillusioned by the by the real politics that they will unfortunately, inevitably as well face. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, and if anything, they are at a monumental juncture right now with Burhan and the army you know, opening doors for popular recruitment, you know, the kind of, you know, so-and-so called conscription. Uh, most of the people who have remained in Sudan, you know, the you know, the youth serving age were probably at some point in the last four or five years, either directly members of the RCs or at least involved in the protesting and the revolution. So now, bless them, they are, you know, being faced with, you know, a monumental kind of, you know, decision. They, I mean, they have to make the choice of defending their homes, their lives, their lands, you know, from the incursion of, you know, uh, fighters like the RSF, but also at the same time, balance the short and long-term politics in relation to what it means to be a recruit in the army, right? To have to carry a weapon and pointed against another member of, you know, Sudan's extended community. And obviously, these are questions that will come back post-war as it relates to, you know, um, kind of Mamdani's whole, um, what's it called? Um, uh, killers and survivors, victims of victims and survivors, um, that whole kind of concept. 
So yeah. I want to briefly, because I do see there's an overemphasis on geopolitics and talking about the international players or regional players, but specifically here, uh, I've heard, I believe in a, a brief lecture you'd given uh, Raja on uh, the political economy of the Janjaweed, what are now the RSF. And one thing that I didn't know is that a lot of these young soldiers were basically mobilized in Yemen. There is also a very strong attachment to, especially for the RSF, to the UAE, uh, who are believe are the predominant buyers of Sudanese gold, which brings in the question of the sort of material reality that a lot of people are facing. I definitely know this, again, I'll, I'll bring in my example of, of Lebanon, wherein the army especially after the war, really recruits more from peripheral areas, from the north or the south. And so there's this material dilemma. There's this very real problem wherein people have their, all industries have been destroyed and, and there is not much in the way that the, the entire country is a kind of market-based neoliberal economy, that there really is not much options to sustain oneself. Um, so if you, could you speak to that a bit more, uh, just in terms of the kind of the macro that is reflected in the micro. I mean, yes, it's exactly what you just said, that um, I think this has to do with the history of post-colonialism, which was meant to be developmentalist. Sudan's earlier relation with uh, the Gulf was one of developmental loans for agriculture investment. And now we're talking about the, the era of the 60s, the 70s, and obviously all these kind of, you know, massive extended developmental projects um, failed to yield the kind of, you know, economic turnaround for the country, but also profits on the global economy. But since then, the nature of financial flows, financial transactions is bet between countries of the global south have become somewhat more ominous. Uh, Bashir's 20 or 30 years of power has been shored up mostly through what we call political funding from you know the Gulf. So um, in order to maintain his you know um, control mainly especially over urban constituencies, the state has to subsidize a lot of the public services it provides. And that obviously kind of, you know, weighs heavily on the economy, especially one that is not productive. What usually happens is that countries, this is not unique to Sudan, it happens, you know, in all of the countries of the global south. What happens is that countries then turn to international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, and they ask for loans. But obviously, these loans are attached to a set of conditionalities. One of them, and the most important one of them, is that you cannot use this money to continue to subsidize wheat or medicine or whatever, you know, for the public. And that you have to, you know, push some austerity measures and force the public to, you know, find other means, basically, of, you know, procuring life-saving needs. So... What Bashir does, or what the Gulf has kind of, you know, developed into some sort of kind of, you know, regional geopolitical technique, is that they bail these countries out with political funds. So they send them kind of, you know, some lump, kind of, you know, un unconditioned, you know, without any condition conditionalities, no strings attached, 
kind of, you know, sums of money to kind of, you know, revive the economy. But obviously all these um, uh, funds are kind of, you know, this revival process is short, short-lived. And so what happens is the economy obviously is in a dive, a nosedive. You receive the political funds, it goes up a little bit, and then it goes down quickly after that. However, there are costs to these political funds. And in the case of the Emirates and Saudi, it was the involvement of, you know, Arasa fighters, fighters from the periphery in the Yemen war. Soon after that, it became a matter of, you know, extending kind of, you know, uh, really problematic kind of investment agreements over huge swaths of land in Sudan for the use of these same countries. And shortly after that, it then became the port. So it's 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 almost kind of, you know, an extended incursion over, you know, literally and physically over Sudan's, you know, economy. First it was labor, even if it was fighting labor, and then it's land, and then later it's ports and so on and so forth. Um, so it's a particular kind of political economy that's uh, that's that that is in a sense connected to or kind of you know share characteristics of a war economy that has kind of developed as part of the the parcel and package of you know these regional geopolitics, um, and obviously with the RSF, it's it's quite extreme because not only are you exporting violence you also have to contend with the fact that when these war ends or when these funds to finance these young men end, these men come back with, you know, a taste of a lot of dollars, a lot of money, but also with one skill, and that's wielding the gun. And I think that's what happened in, in the case of Sudan. You had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of war-trained young men who, who were still in their prime, and who were still looking for, you know, a source of income. And the only thing they needed, they, they knew what, what to do was fight or will the gun. But also Sudan's kind of, you know, domestic politics kind of complicates things because the long history of Sudan's internal wars also mean that you've had, not militias necessarily, but kind of, you know, rebel movements with a political cause who have kind of emerged over different periods but also kind of died down or kind of dissipated because there was no outcome for their mobilization. And they also left behind thousands and thousands of young men who were ready to be absorbed into whatever fighting force would pay them the highest. So you ended up creating some sort of kind of, um, this is what I talked about earlier, you end up kind of, you know, militarizing, you know, people at the community level uh, and all for the cost of you know a house or a car or the ability to you know to to wed you know marriage is a big thing especially in the periphery right it's 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 the transference it's a transition sorry it's a transition from being you know child to an adult regardless of an age of age and a lot of men in order to achieve this status of adulthood would you know, normalize employment in, you know, in these, under these kind of conditions, in these circumstances, for the sake of, you know, bringing back some money to their, to, to their family, to, to their mothers, um, you know, marrying, um, and so on and so forth. So it's complicated. It's not just regional, kind of, you know, politics kind of driven by the incursions of 
sorry, an extractive capitalist system, but it's also domestic politics that is kind of, you know, open to receiving such kind of um, influences. Yeah, I just, I just want to add something to what Rajah was saying. Um, it's, it's very interesting because it's a different, con a different way of looking at things than I have looked at it. But I think also resources plays a big part in terms, especially in the likes of the countries of the Gulf. Yes, they've built like these modern Meccas, maybe Meccas are wrong word, modern Las Vegas styles, you know, cities, but they still suffer from, from resources. And a country like Sudan, with its myriad of problems and issues, it's just resources wise, it's an endless pot, whether it's agriculture, whether it's access to the Red Sea, whether it's the Nile waters, whether it's the minerals, the gold, the petrol, you list them, Sudan has it. So I can see it's like a prized asset to have and doesn't matter how the means justify the end, so to speak. So whether they're supporting the RSF, whether they're supporting the SAF, whether they're supporting some unknown you know, rebel group that we even haven't heard of yet, but they're creating, they will do that if it means that they can guarantee for themselves access to resources that they, in their wildest dreams, would not have access to. And it's not just them. It's not just the Gulf countries. There's other part, There's other countries, nations involved, you know. You have leadership that really doesn't, doesn't care about what they sell off or what they give out as long as they can maintain the, that seat of power, which is why the role of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, and even Iran... Has is so big in countries like Sudan and Libya and Syria and Yemen, and it will continue to be to do so as long as we have leadership that really has no problems in selling us out for the highest bidder. It comes down to that basically: it's resources, it's geopolitics, it's the flexing of political muscle and if political economical muscle, and as always, it's the people who end up paying the hefty price, you know. You know, where's 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 Bashir now? Bashir starting started started Bashir and his cronies started this whole let's sell off Sudan to the highest bidder. Where are they now? You know, they've created this mess. They've gotten away scot-free, so to speak. And we're still here discussing the mess they've created and trying to think of ways of to clean up this mess. And every time we we make an attempt to clean it up. Something happens and the mess gets worse and gets bigger. And we have to rethink, replan, go back to, you know, go back to square one and think of what, what can we do. And unfortunately as well, there's no one out there who actually wants to help. And when I say help, I don't mean in terms of giving aid or giving loans or whatever. It's just helping as in just giving the guidance to be able to, to move forward. No one does that. No one has offered anything. You know, everything that's been put on the table is for someone's benefit, but nothing for us as Sudanese, for example. And it's it's disheartening to see and it's disheartening to, to, to realize this is happening. And at the same time, I also look at our own people, our own leadership, whether it's political or businessmen or, you know, every, people who've had, a, who've had a part to play and instead of you choosing the best part for Sudan, they chose the supporting part for themselves and left us like, you know, just sitting there twiddling our thumbs, not knowing what we can do.
You hit on a really important point, which I think is something that unifies so many contexts within the global South, which is this complete lack of internationalism and this incredible need for internationalism. So I think what Sudan has definitely taught us, and Syria as well, is that this myth of the international community is a myth, that there's a lot of talk, and even when there is aid, that they talk to specific people, but they ignore even more, and that they're really either unable or unwilling to actually assist in progressing our revolutionary demands, which are not just idealistic, but necessary for our survival. And when I think about what is missing and what that's lacking is that it's not grounded in a real kind of revolutionary internationalism, which I have no idea how it forms, but I've definitely seen the ways that it doesn't work or that it's sort of um, lacking, especially in the case of Syria, for example, which I do want to ask about in terms of Sudan, because there's this Syria over the last decade has gotten a lot of international attention, but in many ways that was really harmful because with a lot of these people who hypothetically could be international comrades ended up being some of the most toxic, some of the most harmful. Here I'm thinking about the what are called the alt-imperialists, uh, tankies, if you will, people in the West who see Bashar al-Assad as an anti-imperialist figure. And so ridiculously kind of, and then all these conspiracy theories and everything. So it's almost like a double-edged sword, which, and so I've noticed in Sudan, for example, that there isn't that same international reach. In some ways that's good, in some ways that's bad. Uh, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts or opinions on that. Um, I actually think there's um, conflict fatigue, so to speak, in a way, it's just like donor fatigue. There's conflict fatigue because, and also at the same time, I don't think people know how to box Sudan. Are they an Arab country? Are they East African? What are they? Are they African? Are they Christian? Are they Muslim? They can't seem to box, you know, people like to put things in, you know, in certain boxes like, so Syria is this and, and uh, Palestine is this issue. And so they don't know where to put Sudan. And so in a way, it's kind of like, okay, maybe if we ignore it for a while, you know, it will just go away. But to ignore it is to your de own detriment, I think. And I, I think this is one of the questions I've been asked when I've done job interviews. Why should we care about Sudan? And I'm like, because what happens here doesn't just affect me or it affects my northern neighbors. It affects li literally this whole region. If you look at the whole, you know, the whole Sahel from west, from the Atlantic coast down to the Red Sea, it's just one long line of coups, and the you know, and all these like different hands, tentacles of outside of outside fat players having you know having a say in what's happening, and it's the same thing in Syria. We a lot of, there's a lot, there was a lot of discourse because I was I really follow was following up on the Syria case because I was I went to Syria like a year before the war broke out, so it it broke my heart to see what was happening. But it was just amazing how the narrative was switched and played to suit certain actors, you know, it played into their hands. Like, I mean, the, even the White Helmets, you know, that group, the White Helmets were so bad mouthed, so politicized 
that is, you couldn't even mention their name without being attacked, is, as in how could you, and so on and so forth. You know, we had people disputing the fact that there was chemical, chemical weapons were being used in Syria. People actually went against and said, no, this is not happening. They would make you out to be a liar if you said so. That discourse, that, this, that change of narrative hasn't happened to Sudan internationally because we're doing it ourselves as Sudanese. We, we, we really don't need outside help. You know, just leave us to our own devices and we will mess it up the way we, you know, whatever way we can. But I honestly think it goes back to, you know, fatigue, this whole... And also, in regards to Syria captivated the attention for so long, but then something else came along, and that was Ukraine. You're talking about blonde, white, blue-eyed people who look like you and me, and they were invaded by big old bad Russia... You know, and so that's completely taken over the whole political, international political arena. And just look at, I mean, one simple example, look at how much donor, aid donor, aid donations were given to Ukraine and how much is being given to Sudan, for example. Look at how Western governments treated Ukrainians, you know, who who left and fled Ukraine for safety and how it's not just Sudanese, but how Ethiopians, how Sudanese, how Syrians are treated when they're attempting to flee for their own safety. We may not have an outside country invading our country, that's true, but still it's war, it's conflict. You, you, seek, you seek safety. So it's, I think a lot of factors come into play and it's funny how Bashar was taken from being like this horrible, horrible, you know, what do you call it, dictator, to now being being welcomed back with open arms by the Arab League, by all other regional actors. It's like nothing's ever happened. It's like these past 10 years do not count. You know, it's just just like people have selective amnesia. They really only remember what they want to remember and forget what they want to forget. And it's just, it's disgusting actually how he's been embraced back and welcomed back. And Syrians are still... You know, the war hasn't stopped. The destruction hasn't stopped. And Syrians are still, you know, refugees, millions of them out, outside their own country. They still can't go home. It's just a sad state of affairs. But this is what we're, this is the reality we're all living in right now. You know, like I was telling people, I don't say no to any media requests simply because we have to, as Sudanese, no one's going to speak for us. We have to speak for ourselves. You know, you can count how many Sudanese experts, Western Sudanese experts there are on like on one hand, so to speak. So we have to do it ourselves. We have to gain back control of our own narrative, narrative, make sure that our story is being told, that we have a say in what's being put out there and what's being reported and how to make sure that attention doesn't, you know, move away. It has moved away from Sudan, but... Whatever little snippet we can get, I personally think we should take it and run run with it because we have no other choice. Thank you, Dalia. Um, I just uh, going back to the term you use, Amen. What was it? Ultra ultra um, anti imperialism was it? Alt imperialism. Alt imperialism. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the, the truth is, it does exist in Sudan. It's just the terms of it are a bit different, right? It's kind of tailored to context. I mean, think of someone, someone like someone like Hamdouk, for example, right? Who was the head of the transitional government? He was kind of vetted by, you know, members of the international, not just community, but also, you know, kind of 
members of you know high standing governments with a lot of weight um he was i mean until the end and even now i mean he remains the darling of the international community or the west no one can say anything about him right there's no fault uh i'm sorry they can't fault him um and consider what uh, hamduk represents hamduk represents a kind of order that befits the West's understanding of what lacks on the global side, in the global South, and particularly in the African continent, uh, that he has come to kind of you know bring order or to dispel disorder, right? To kind of reform the state, so to say, right? To come in and remove politics from it, remove patrimonialism from it. Uh, he came to you know kind of fix the civil service. He came to fix the economy. Right, he came to sign peace deals, right, um, and obviously at the helm of all these ideas around what ailed Sudan was the need to kind of shore up a faltering economy. So this is the logic, right, of new colonialism, which is an economic logic, right? It's a, it's a, it's a logic of state functionalism. So just tailored to the particularity of to the particularities of Sudan, uh, the same kind of you know ideas or the reactionarism that you saw in other contexts like Syria or other places does exist in Sudan. But in the case of Sudan, it was kind of you know designed or kind of communicated in the language of professionalism. I mean, I guess there there's an idea in you know, amongst the international community as well, that maybe Sudan's failure to shore up itself is a product of, you know, its its own kind of internal ailments. And obviously this also builds on a long and problematic history of, you know, kind of masked up racism that has that is, you know, kind of inbuilt into kind of, you know, long-standing colonial relations and a history that continues to kind of re reproduce itself, where the West presents the African continent with a formula of how it's meant to develop and become civilized. And if it doesn't meet, you know, these standards, then, you know, it's just the way we are. Even if tried and tested, it doesn't work. And then this kind of lends on to the other point I was going to talk about, uh, which is kind of the um, kind of, you know, external interventions, not just of government and institutions, but of individuals in the name of expertise, you know, so the crisis of the experts. And this has been going on, you know, with Sudan, not just since the war started, but you know, since the revolution started, right? I mean, it was the latest, Sudan was the latest kid on the block, you know, with some refreshing news. And, you know, um, uh, suddenly we had, you know, this barrage of experts, all who could, you know, comment on, you know, the state of Sudan and the status of the revolution and what these people want and what they don't want and how it should be and how it shouldn't be. And it's a money-making scheme. Some of it, yes, kind of is controlled by the, you know, institutional standards of what, you know, good academic, good and rigorous academic analysis is. Others, you know, equally published still, 
is quite atrocious. And the ethnic kind of, you know, narrative is quite strong throughout. And these problematic accounts or analyses remain dominant. They come from the outside, they're catered to an international readership, and they have nothing to do with the Sudanese people. And yes, and that's why I say kudos, uh, Dahlia, when Sudanese people are asked to make a media presence, they should always jump at the opportunity because I think one of Sudan's many problems is that historically, we always had people speaking for us. Well, thank you so much. I think we we have to wrap up and I think that's a really great note to to end on. Um, Thank you both so much for um, being here today and sharing your uh, analyses and your ideas and your thoughts. Um, There's one thing that I'm very sorry I forgot to mention and it's usually a bit of a it's yeah, we at the end of the every episode of Fire These Times, we ask the guests uh for recommendations for books, for viewings, for anything. It could be in terms of things you would want other people to read about Sudan. And this is definitely going back to what you had said earlier, uh Raja, about the fact that there isn't that much text. I mean, there are texts, but uh, I think when I was doing my research, there aren't many books. A book length that goes through i think one of the best ones was the one that you had edited um the unfinished democracy so on that point uh if each one of you could suggest any readings or podcasts or films um now's the time okay well very quickly i am going to say that because we are at a moment of ideological crisis and obviously i am directing this at maybe young you know young people young young active revolutionary people who are members of um the left everywhere uh and especially you know members of the rcs is to go back and read the material that was written about sudan in the 50s and the 60s because back then it was you know the the frameworks of the methodology of analysis was historical materialism it wasn't you know like the liberal description of political science that we see today and particularly one book, uh, which is called um, The Economy of Sudan or Sudan's Economy by O'Brien is an ample text. I mean, it's a bit old. It might be out of print, but it could be sourced. And the reason I love this book is because it tells the middle class, it tells the Sudanese middle class how they are firsthand involved in kind of, you know, shoring up the um, problematic behavior of the Sudanese state through economic policies, through social policies, through political policies. Um, it kind of, you know, looks at this history of this merchant class, which is my class, probably your class as well, Dalia, and how they have historically kind of, you know, formed alliance with the army to create the Sudanese state and continue to push policies that benefit the, their particular class over everyone's. So, yeah. Um, actually, I would tell anyone, go listen to Sudanese music, whether it's old or new, or classic or new, modern, you know. It's, you're, it's basically the, the, the music of the streets. There's so many new rappers coming out, new singers and artists. I think the creative, the cultural aspect of Sudan is what's really telling our story because it's coming directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. There's loads of Sudanese documentaries out. 
you know, there's loads of films out made by Sudanese with Sudanese, and the music scene is amazing. I mean, I learn a lot, you know, about the youth culture by listening to this music, even though it's not my favorite genre of music, but there is, I can send you a list of artists and documentaries and films that are out and you know, like Talking to Trees and Beats of the Antonov are really good films and documentaries to see. There's also Goodbye Julia, which has just been put forward to the Oscar. It's won so many awards. And You Will Die at 20. So many films that talk about the culture, the politics, the economy, the history of Sudan and who we are as Sudanese because it's it's very unique to us, our music sounds and our films and our dialect as well. There's so many dialects we have. So that's my recommendation. Keep away from the books, stick to the music, but, you know, blast it on, dance your ass off and just learn something because I think that's the best. That's, this is, that's what I'm doing because I'm missing home so much. I'm just listening to Sudanese music day in, day out. My mother plays the nationalistic songs of Mohammed Wardi and all those people. And I played the youth, you know, the Sudanese who are living abroad or whatever. And I think that's the best thing people can do. All right, great. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. And um, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of The Fire These Times. If you'd like to support us, head out to patreon.com slash fire these times to get early access to episodes, exclusive premium episodes, as well as access to our monthly hangout book club, merchandise, and more. So, Rajan Dalio, thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Amen. Hey,